my name is Jessica, and I am on staff here, and I'm so delighted to welcome you to church today, whether you're here in the building or watching online. Okay, so we have been in this series for the past few weeks on suffering. It's called Walking with God When It Hurts. And for those of you who've been with us for the past few weeks, we really do hope that it's been helpful. It sounds like it has been based on a lot of the things you guys have been sharing with us. Um, One of the things that I think we hold in common is that to varying degrees, all of us will experience difficulty in our lives. All of us. This is not an exception to the rule, although it sometimes can feel like our pain and suffering is this alien invasion, but actually it's something that Jesus told us we would experience in life. And we want to be people who have a faith that can withstand the adversity that we face in our lives. Last week, Jordan walked through Matthew 26, which is really this profound passage of Scripture. It documents Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we see Jesus doing the very thing that this sermon series is called. He is walking with God the Father when it hurts. In Matthew 26, verse 37, it says, Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He, Jesus, began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. We see here in Matthew that Jesus was in agony as he prepared himself for the cross and his crucifixion. All of the evil of it, all of the pain of it, Jesus is facing it. And for us today, it is so important for us to know that when we experience pain and we come to Jesus with that pain and suffering, Jesus isn't this professor who gives us a lecture on how to deal with our suffering. He doesn't deal in the theoretical. He meets us as a fellow sufferer who can show us how to persevere through evil and suffering. We don't have a manual for how to navigate hard times in life, but instead we have a nail-pierced shepherd who walks with us and for us to follow. And so as we continue this series today, I want to talk about a major question that many of us wrestle with, and that's how do we help people who are suffering? If suffering happens to all of us, how can we be a community of people who are supportive and truly helpful when people are hurting? Unfortunately, I have been in need of people supporting me during some pretty dark days of my life. Um, Many of you know at least a portion of my story, but back in 2009, I got married to a man named Jerron. And two and a half months into our marriage, I came home from work and was greeted by him, and he had picked up a slice of cheesecake and put it in the fridge for us to eat after dinner that night. But first, he and a few of his friends were going to go out and ride on their motorcycles. So 
As I settled in and kind of chilled on the couch, I was starting to drift off for a nap when the doorbell rang. I hopped up, opened the door, and I see the girlfriend of one of the friends that Jaron was out with that night. She told me that Jaron had been in an accident while riding his bike, and I was panicked. But she quickly reassured me that he was fine, that he'd gone in an ambulance to the hospital, but that she'd give me a ride there so I could get there and see him. So I check in at the hospital, and they immediately show us to a family waiting room. And it's not long that I'm in there that I'm starting to get a little confused because why are we in this family waiting room as opposed to the general waiting room? And why is this nurse who's attending to us so somber? Why is he telling me that he really needs me to stay strong? And so I'm asking him, like, well, I mean, he's going to be okay, right? I mean, we're talking about maybe a couple of broken bones or something. And he tells me, no, they're doing everything they can to keep him alive. And so at that moment, I pick up the phone and I call my mom. I tell her, Jerron's been in an accident and we need to pray. And we pray, I hang up, and I turn to his friends in that room with me and I say, Jerron is going to be okay. And I truly believe that because I know how special he is. I know how much life he has to live. There's just no way God can't see him through this. Minutes later, a doctor enters the room, asks for me. He explains that Jerron had suffered a lot of injuries and as a result had a lot of internal bleeding. They had drained the blood from his body and tried to give it back to him, but the strain had been too much on his heart. He was sorry. And in that moment, I pleaded. I pleaded with him to go back and try again, that there had to be something he could do, surely, to bring him back to life. More people showed up at the hospital. Things kind of became a blur. And eventually, I had to leave that hospital. I had to go home where the cheesecake was still waiting in the fridge. And I was a 26-year-old widow. Now, I share that story not because I want to depress you, truly, but to share that in the depths of my grief, in my confusion, in my anger, in my sadness, much of my life and faith was held up by the people who were around me when it felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me, I truly didn't know what to do, but I somehow knew I needed people around me. And that community of people around me, they got in the trenches with me. And so now when I think back on that time in my life, in, my, in the depths of my suffering, I want to be a person who can be that for someone else too. And I want you to be that kind of person that can be that for someone else, too. In Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians, he tells them to carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And the translation of the word burden here means a heavy weight or stone that someone is required to carry for a long distance. And so what we see here is that for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 
You are not meant to carry the heavy things that weigh you down by yourself. In a room this size, I can imagine that the burdens you carry are very, very varied. <laughs> Some of you, it's a financial burden, and you've been under that strain not for a short time, but for a long time, and you're just weighed down by it. For others of you, you've endured abuse, or you've lost someone, maybe to death or just in a estranged relationship. Others of us were facing issues with our health, whether that's physical or mental, and it's a major adjustment and disruption to life as we know it. And then others of us who are just sad and angry because the dreams that we had for our life, maybe our career or relationships, they just haven't materialized. And you might not really want to talk about it publicly with people, you might not want to drag down the mood, But the fact is, you walk around with this disappointment and this sadness, and it's all, all of it, whatever the burdens, they're all too much to carry alone. You know, it's interesting because when we look in the book of Genesis and we see that God is creating the heavens and the earth, and each day at the end, He's seeing the things He's created and He's calling them good. This is good, and that is good, and this is good. And then there's this one part in scripture where he calls something not good. And you might think that the first time we see something not good, it's like after sin has entered the world or after the fall, when in fact, it's not after sin, it's when God sees that Adam is alone. That is not good. And as my friend John Anwuchekwa puts it in his book, We Go On, the danger of isolation predates the destruction caused by sin. God has always seen isolation as one of humanity's greatest threats to experiencing his goodness in the world. We are designed to need community, especially when life hurts, and we are called to carry one another's burdens so that none of us is too weighed down. So as important as this all sounds, though, if I am being perfectly honest, sometimes answering the call to carry another person's burdens is not that easy. I think there's a few reasons why it can be hard. Sometimes, you know, someone we know is going through grief and we're so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing. And, you know, if that is you, let me free y'all up for a second. When someone is hurting, there are helpful things that people will do. There are not so helpful things that people will do. Um, but the, the goal is not to fix a person's situation. The goal is not for perfection. It's, in fact, for connection. It's for someone who is hurting to feel your presence. Because the reality is, what you say can't bring the loved person back. What you say or do generally can't bring the job back. But your presence, your presence is what matters. 
Sometimes what also makes it hard for us to bear other people's burdens is like we just don't see it. So Jordan last week talked about tangible grief, which is, let's say someone has died, you've gone to a funeral, I can make this direct line between your tears and the fact that this person is no longer here. But then there's also ambiguous grief. So maybe that's the death of a dream or an expectation or a hope. Things are no longer the way that you wanted them to be or it just seems like the thing you've wanted isn't happening And so you're walking around with this sadness and no one around you knows that you're carrying it because it's this ambiguous grief. Honestly, sometimes it's hard for us to carry one another's burdens because we're judgmental. We ask questions like, now tell me how you got yourself into this? Or, oh, here we go again. Uh Uh-huh, we're doing this again. And this judgment prevents us from entering deeply into the pain and suffering of the person who's hurting. It's as though we're trying to figure out and tell ourselves that they deserve whatever's happening. And as a result, we're off the hook. We don't really have to show up. And then honestly, sometimes it's hard to show up for other people because we have our own issues. We have our own grief. We have our own pain and losses. After Jerron died, in the months after, I had a friend whose father passed away. And I know I just wasn't able to show up in the way that I wanted to for that friend. I didn't have it to give. And I I think that there is grace for that sometimes. You know, we are not superhuman. We do have limitations. But still, one of the quotes about Jesus' life that has blessed and challenged me over the years is from... Tim Keller, who said, even if our own troubles are great, we should still serve. Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. If we are called to carry one another's burdens so that none of us is too weighed down, I think we have to look to Jesus to see how he did it and how we might, by his power, be able to do it as well. So turn with me to John chapter 1. where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Then skipping down to verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John here is making a staggering claim. He is saying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and that Jesus put on flesh and blood and became fully human. Jesus left his world and entered ours. He remained fully who he was, and yet he was fully in our world. And this is known as the incarnation. This is what we celebrate every Christmas. And a helpful way to remember the key aspects of the incarnation is the summary statement in John 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh. And so for those of you who might be hurting right now, 
Maybe you're just so happy to come in here and sit down and you don't know what to feel about your situation. I want you to know if you're hurting, even as you're hurting, Jesus can enter your world and meet you right where you are. He specializes in that. And for those of you who might not be experiencing as much pain in life right now, the incarnation paints this absolutely beautiful and captivating picture of how we can be there for a person who is hurting. We can leave our world, our own concerns, and put ourselves into someone else's world, even as we hold on to ourselves. We can give a face and skin to the presence of God in someone else's life. We can listen deeply with curiosity and care and help the hurting person feel felt. In Jesus, God came to live together with us to show us the full extent of his love and commitment. Jesus spent his life initiating relationships with those isolated by choice, or because of an illness or malady they couldn't control. He went after the lonely, the isolated, the depressed, the hurting. Jesus was able to go to great lengths and endure our burdens because he maintained a focus on you and me and not on himself. To be helpful in someone else's life means that you fight with all your might to make the interaction about the person who is hurting and not about you. What do I mean by this? Well, we talked about this earlier, about how we can often get stuck in our heads thinking about, like, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I doing the right thing? And we fail to realize that in all this thinking about trying to find the right thing, what we're doing in that moment is making it about ourselves. We've forgotten just showing up for the person and being present for them. We're worried about our performance and how we're being perceived. Another way we can fail to be a helpful presence is uh, by minimizing, right? So. That would be if, let's say, someone's in your DNA group and they're sharing about a tough relationship issue, and then you say something like, well, at least you have a great support system. And that might be true. You might have a great support system. The person might have a great support system, but they also have pain. And you're rationalizing and minimizing what's going on. And I think a lot of times people fall into this trap of bringing up the, oh, well, at least, or, well, don't forget, or maybe God wanted this, or whatever, because we're so uncomfortable with grieving people. We're so uncomfortable with people being in pain. So we want to, in the name of giving greater perspective, rush people along in their healing when what they really probably needed was for you to listen and to say, that sounds really difficult. To say, I can imagine how hard that must be, and I'm sorry that you have to deal with that. And the other way that I think that sometimes we can fail to be helpful for hurting people is when we hijack conversations 
And perhaps you know what this feels like. Perhaps you have something that's sensitive and you work up the courage to share vulnerably about what you've been going through. And the person responds with, I know how you feel. And then the next thing you know, you're hearing about their pet fish who died when they were in third grade. And you're like, how did we get here again? Because I thought this was about me, but now it's about you. And when we hijack a person's story, sometimes we mask it as empathy, like we're entering in, but really we've detracted, we've taken them out of the center, we've put ourselves there instead, and we insert ourselves when, again, we want to connect and show up for people and be a loving presence. So instead of doing those things, I encourage us to look to Jesus to listen, not for information or to respond, but with the intention of the hurting person feeling felt by us, that we've entered their world, that we've let go of judgment or appearing a certain way like a fantastic friend, that we would just genuinely care. We can give a face and skin to the presence of God in someone else's life. Now, I want to dig into this a little bit more with some more practical uh, insights. And so to do that, would you guys help me welcome some friends to the stage from our community? Yep, clap it up as they come. We have got Nate, Amber, and Katie. Yes. Um, So we're so grateful that you guys are joining us, and we know it's not necessarily always easy to talk about loss and suffering and pain, but we also think it's just so important and helpful when we hear real stories from real people in our community, and uh, particularly if we want to be the kind of people who show up well for each other. So I was hoping that each of you could take a short time to kind of share about uh, time in your life, your own story of loss or pain and suffering, and then also what it looked like, one or two ways that people showed up for you in meaningful ways. Uh, so, Amber, could you kick us off? Thanks, Jess. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. So, uh, when I was 17, my 22-year-old brother, Corey, was instantly killed in a car accident on Christmas Eve, 1995. Um, We grew up in Jersey, about an hour outside of the city, and so we had a wonderful community. He was out with his friends uh, just for an evening, and they were celebrating that he had gotten accepted into medical school, and it was... um, it was the holiday season. Uh, all of our, our houses decorated, all the gifts under the tree. I was still had a little part-time job at the mall, and I was getting ready to get up that morning um, to get ready for my job, and the doorbell rang. And I remember my mom getting up to go to the door, and she opens the door, and she goes, Earl, my dad's name is Earl. She goes, Earl, it's the police. And I remember him scrambling out of bed, like he like levitated out of his bed and ran towards the door. And I heard the police officer say, he didn't make it. And I remember 
I will never forget the sounds of my parents screaming. I remember the moment I dropped to the ground and all of those sounds and feelings and sights and moments um, were almost 28 years ago, yet those memories you know, still feel like yesterday. And so when I think about what community looks like, um, I guess it's, it's the fact that, you know, one, Corey died right before I went off to college. So almost immediately, I was in the space of people knowing me and not knowing him and not knowing this part of me. And, um, and I'm 45 now, and, and that's kind of how I've experienced this grief journey that uh, at this point in my life I've been alive longer than I knew him and I am constantly in a space of you know do I do I share this part of myself nobody except my family um, no one in my life at this point ever knew Corey and knew me when Corey was alive and so what community looks like, because I'm, I'm not, it, it looks different. I'm not, you know, I I'm, don't need to be held necessarily, not all the time. Mm-hmm. My husband's really good at that, though, sometimes <laughs> it happens. <laughs> but um, it's different because um, it's about, community looks like just knowing that I think about him a lot still. Um, every single time I see his, his friends or his frat brothers post their families and their successes and their updates on Instagram, it still pings a little in my heart. Um, I'm one of those people that you don't know, you know, it's the holiday season and holidays are tough. That is very much so my experience. Um, I miss him. And um, to, to be in community and to support me in that journey of grief is to just is to know that um, is to know that I'm always thinking about him and I would say you know the way that people have shown up is <laughs> they know his name they know what his birthday is they know it's Christmas Eve and what that means for me and my family um, and knowing that I'm just always thinking about Corey uh, even though you know, grief looks different 28 years into the, into the journey. Um, he's always on my mind. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Amber. I think you touched on two great, really practical things. Um, one is remembering those milestone dates for people who've experienced some kind of loss, putting that in our calendars and actually being the one to send the text or the flowers on those those big days because in the aftermath of a loss like that there's hundreds of people at the funeral there's lots of people in those weeks but 28 years later when it still hurts a lot of those people are no longer around and it just means so much so that is so good and then the second thing I think too that you mentioned is just to talk about the loved one you know I think sometimes we I've experienced that people think, well, do I bring up the person's name because then I might send them into a dark place, but it's like we're thinking about our loved ones all the time, please. And in some ways, you know, it helps keep them alive. So I love that you shared that. Um, Nate, let's go to you. Uh, You might not necessarily have a tangible grief like that, but maybe you want to share a little bit about ambiguous grief. 
Um, yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, so for, for much of my um, adolescent and adult life, I've really carried this weight of unprocessed grief, kind of like a, a death of, of many, many cuts. Um, and I, I know that there were things that I experienced prior to um, this one particular summer that I really can kind of like trace as like a, a really transitional moment in that experience of grief and many things that happened after. But um, it's the, the feeling itself and that ambiguity of not really being able to tangibly grab hold of something that's very disorienting and has been disorienting, me, disorienting for me for a really long period of time. But um, the, the summer of my transition from um, eighth to ninth grade, I essentially lost all of my community um, because my, um, my best friend and his family, who I had grown up with, I had known them since I was maybe like four or five, they are my earliest memory um, in life. Uh, they answered a call to um, join a church in Illinois, and maybe within two, three weeks, um, they, were, they were gone. Um, and they were really everything. They were the heart of my community. They were the heart of my block. They were, they were my heart in many ways. And when they left, um, that piece of me left as well. Um, at that time, I was also transitioning from middle school where um, I had really worked hard to um, fit in and, and I had had difficulties fitting in prior to that, but I had kind of had a community that I was able to rely on and that I was looking to do life with. And um, my parents, I felt betrayed by them with this. It seemed small, but they decided to um, take me out of that school and put me into um, another school for good reasons, but um, I felt the loss all the same. And I think that those two events at that time um, and the just that that shift from um, really having everything figured out to really going to having nothing figured out and really not having anyone to be able to speak to about it and being unwilling to speak to anyone about it um, was really really tough and I didn't recognize how tough it was but it led to a lot of um, unhealthy methods of coping that only compounded over time and led to more situations where I had more grief. And eventually I just ended up angry, ended up angry, irritated, and isolated. Um, the bit about community, I think, was so significant because I didn't really feel like I had community. And even in the times where I did have community, I did have people around me, I didn't really feel like they knew me. I didn't really feel like I was opening up to them. There was just this um, hole that I had that continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I tried to fill it with all of these things that just were, were not sufficient. Um, coming into community now, especially within the last two to three years, finding Renaissance and really getting integrated into Renaissance has been really um, restorative for me, redemptive in a lot of ways, because I've had space to um, identify what's coming up for me. And um, I've had people who are willing to travel alongside me um, in that identification and just kind of like make space for me to, to be, right? So. Yeah, that's so great. So good. And how about you, Katie? Hello, everyone. <laughs> I, I wish I wasn't qualified to be on this stage right now. <laughs> right. That's, that's my precursor um, to this conversation. But, um, but here we are. Um, so in 2018... Um, I had been living in New York for five years, and I was living in Brooklyn, and I was working at a nonprofit, 
And I was engaged to someone who lived in Philadelphia. And so as we drew closer to the wedding date, I got, was looking for a job there, relocated, moved in, you know, in all intensive purposes, it was like I was starting a whole new fresh chapter. And then a few weeks before our wedding, he changed his mind and, um, and called the whole thing off. And, you know, it, a moment like that obviously is just as jarring as you would assume, especially given that I had, like, given up so much and so willingly. Like, I, I was like hopeful for the life that we were building together and um but then to so quickly kind of realize like I gave up my affordable apartment and now like for you <laughs> yo you know? that's crazy um and you know I was just like whoa okay so I I really didn't know what to do with myself after that experience and um, at the time, I had, you know, my friends were still in New York, and I had some friends who were like, come, come, like, I was like, I don't know what to do with myself, <laughs> you know, and so they were like, come back to New York, like, we'll take care of you here, like, you need to come home, and, um, and so I decided to move back to the city, but this time relocate to Harlem, which is where um, several of my friends lived at the time. And, and that's how I ended up at Renaissance, actually. Um, so I was just tagging along <laughs> with two close friends of mine, um, Jeff and Mary Elizabeth Kyle. And I would just show up in this room. And I remember for the first year, my like biggest takeaway of Renaissance <laughs> was that I loved how dark it was. <laughs> Because I could just cry from the start of the service to the end of the service. And, um, and it ended up becoming a place of like emotional release for me. And I think later, I think after quite some time, I, I really thought about that. And I was like, you know, I think it's because... You know, even though Jordan and Jess didn't know my story at that time... There is a culture in this room because of their own stories where like where grief and joy can exist here. And I think on some kind of mental, emotional level, like physical level, like my body felt that, you know, and so I would walk into the room and just lose it. Um, and so anyway, I just, I think that that's really important to note because that's actually really rare. And I can't think of other spaces where that exists, so. Hmm. Man, thank you guys. So I, I want to also touch on uh, what it has been like for you all to, I guess, allow people to show up for you. I know it's, a lot of us like our self-sufficiency. We like being independent. We like it when we don't have to lean on other people. I think loss, when we experience it, often drives us to that place of needing people. But I think on the flip side of that, we get to experience relationship in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. So I'm just wondering, you know, how has that perhaps been true for you? Nate, maybe you want to start? 
Yeah, when I when I think about um, when I think about abandonment, I I, I think that um, this desire to not be a burden for people is sort of tied to that, and in some way, like intravenously almost, I I just kind of. Um, took that on, that I did not want to be a burden to people. I did not want to inconvenience people. I wanted to be self-sufficient in all spaces at all times. And also I wanted other people to be the same. And so when you were speaking earlier about that, the judgment, that, that is, yeah, that was me. And, and in many ways it, it still is, and I'm, I'm working through that. But being in a space where um, I was able to really like own my, my story allowed me to um, give of myself for other people and become less, so, less um, self-consumed and less self-focused. And I was able to process through a lot of the emotions, but then also have the capacity then to take on emotions of other people when they, when they need. So Renaissance for me has, has always been like this, this dance between you give a little and you get a little. So it's been a, it's been a space for me to give um, of myself, and it's also been a space for me to like receive what other people are are willing to do and, and have for me. That's great, Amber. How about you? Sure. So, um, I think about the fact that it's really easy for me at this point to kind of tuck Corey's death away and um, not have to bring it up. Um, you know, when you're meeting people and you're in community, at some point, the question about your family comes up. Do you have siblings? I've got two answers to that question ready to go. And I'm always in that split moment, I'm asking myself, okay, what's the tone? Where are we? Who asked me? Do they really want to know? Do I really want to share today? Um, and this self-sufficiency is really, for me, just being like, I don't need to break it up, bring it up, or I don't need to talk about it. And it truly is less about me, you know, breaking down and having a sad moment, and more about, you know, being a burden or creating this, this moment that's really awkward. And if you, you know, I don't want, I don't want you to have to do all that. Um, but I will say a couple years ago, I decided that anytime anybody asked me if I have a sibling, I was going to say yes. And, um, I'm still working on it. Sometimes I apologize. If you have asked me recently, do I have a sibling? And I said, no, I apologize. I'm still working on it. But, um, for me, I realized though, and, and the reason why I want to say and be more honest about the fact that I have a brother is because, to know me is to know that Corey lived and died. And to not share that piece of myself means I'm sort of, I'm holding back yeah. and I'm not being as authentic as I want to be and need to be in community. And so um, I love what you shared, Jess, about um, what God said wasn't good. And when he realized that you know, Adam needed a partner, and that is sticking with me. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't created to be alone. We were created to be in community, and I and I want to. I just want to do more of that and be as authentic as possible because it's it is such an important part of me. 
um, that I that I want to share. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And Katie. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think due to the intensity <laughs> of my situation, I really didn't have the luxury to try and be self sufficient. Um, because on a very practical level, like I just didn't, like I need, there were just so many needs, like emotional and logistical, of like I need a home and a job and blah, blah, blah and people to remind me to take a shower and like just <laughs> a lot. And, um, but one thing that stands out to me is um, that at that time, um, one of my closest friends, you know, like she was walking with me through my experience while also being, like, freshly married and, like, baby on the way and, like, the glow, you know? And and the fact that she, like, was able to walk with me and, and that, like, it just actually, um, it really grew our friendship. And I think it's because she, like, named the awkwardness. Like, she, over tears, like said to me, like, I'm having a hard time sitting with you because of our juxtaposition (laughs) of life. And, like, just the fact that she was able to name that meant so much to me um, because it's true. But, like, that's also what community is. And I think it's unrealistic for us to think that we can only comfort people if we know exactly what that feels like, mm-hmm. they're just, we all have such vast experiences. And so for us to be able to fully relate to someone and everything, like, that's just not a thing, you know? And, but, but like being there in silence and also like naming the awkwardness meant a lot to me. Yeah, so profound. Thank you guys so much for sharing. Can you guys clap it for them, please? <laughs> It truly, it means so much to hear each of your stories, and it's our prayer, Renaissance, that we would be a community that can get awkward and can get messy and can be the kinds of people where people don't have to feel like they have to hold back, can this person handle this, but that uh, just like Jesus came close and got very messy because we were messy, uh, we want to be that for other people. So thank you guys so much. Let me pray real quick. Lord, help us, Father, to be people who can show up well for others. God, would your incarnation be the model that we would leave our world, enter into others, and uh, that people in this room would feel supported, cared for, and felt by those around them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.